And I invite you this morning to turn to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9, 1 through 7. These Christmas sermons are getting too clever by half, so I apologize in advance for, uh, well, the ridiculousness of my analogy. But it's going to work. It's going to be fine. Uh, I have a friend who loves using filters on his digital pictures. And not just the color ones that turn your pictures into like those sort of yellow old-timey photos. He really likes filters that add things into the picture. Uh, Santa hats on people's heads, reindeer in the background. Um, I am not a big filter guy. My family would tell you I'm just not a big take pictures guy. So I don't really get the appeal of filters. So I asked him, what is it about filters that you like so much? And here's what he said. Well, they're fun. Uh, they're funny. But honestly, I think they help people understand the way that I feel about what's going on in the picture. So for him, filters help other people understand uh, how important the memory is to him or how important the person is to him, the way he feels about what's going on. And it, it invites those people then to feel the same way he does about that event. And while writing this sermon, I realized that God sees the leaders of his people like they are living filters. And here's what I mean. Whether it's kings, elders, deacons, parents, teachers, the way that leaders speak, the way they treat others, the, the way they repent and forgive, and who they repent to, and who they forgive, the example they set, it acts like a filter that tells others what's valuable and what's not valuable, what's worthy of being displayed, archived, and treasured, and what can be, as my grandpa used to say, ash canned, you know, burned, and discarded. The way leaders act and talk and treat others helps give the people they lead a vision for how God sees the world and consequently how they should see the world and live in the world. Leaders set the course of discipleship. And that's why God has given us his son as our Christmas filter. All right, Pastor Matt, that's enough. Stop it. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'll do better. Uh, but my point is that this morning, uh, we're going to look at the kind of leadership King Jesus gives us so that we can see not only how he rules over us as our king, but learn how to see the world through his own redemptive love. I think this is a timely word from God for us this morning, so let's hear it. Let's read Isaiah 9, 1 to 7. We'll pray, and then we'll reflect on the kind of king Jesus is and how his kingship teaches us to view the world. So let's hear God's word. Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. God says this, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish, in the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in this latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. 
Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Thus, Father, reading of what can only be God's own word. Let's pray together. Father, this morning we thank you for your word and we pray that you would help us to catch a vision of the zeal which led you to send Jesus to become our wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace, our King and our Savior. Father, we ask that your Spirit now would give us minds to understand, ears to hear, and hearts to believe your word. Lord, may the words of my mouth as your preacher And may the meditation of all of our hearts as those called to hear and receive and respond to your word, may it all now be pleasing in your sight. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I want to spend most of our time this morning on the powerful description of Jesus in verses 6 through 7. But the names that Jesus receives, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, they're going to mean so much more to us if we understand the context. And I'm going to be brief here, but please listen. If you're here uh, in person, if you're online, if you're sick or caring for the sick, listen, this is, in, this is important. About 700 years before Jesus was born, God's people had entered a very low point in their life together. Uh, decades before Isaiah was written, God's people had suffered from a civil war that had left their nation cut in two, two countries, two kings, two national identities, and a very confused understanding and relationship with God. And that's especially true in the northern kingdom of Israel, which is where Isaiah was prophesying. Without going into a lot of detail, the kings and rulers of Israel were not usually committed to God alone. And this is especially true of our passage because here Ahaz is king. Now, like Ahab, the husband of Jezebel, Ahaz is a notoriously bad king in the Bible. He's greedy, selfish, cruel, unteachable, insecure, suspicious, and power-hungry. Those are not the lenses that God wants us to look at the world through, are they? Now, as I said, one of the things that God tells us in the Bible is that, by and large, people tend to follow the examples of their leaders. If their leaders are cruel, their followers, in this case, their citizens, they will usually be 
cruel if they are righteous and merciful, like King David, who's mentioned in our passage, they will tend to be righteous and merciful. But if, like Ahaz, they're selfish and greedy and power-hungry, their followers will be too. And this was the case in Israel. And like Ahaz, Israel was greedy. She exploited the poor. She took advantage of the immigrant and the old and the children. She took advantage of those who were weak in order to get more money. And like Ahaz, she was violent and she was power hungry. And like her king, Israel had become so unteachable that God had finally decided it was time to dismantle the nation so that he could put his people back together in righteousness. As God likes to say throughout the prophets, it had become time for him to wound in order to heal. It had become time for him to kill in order to bring resurrection life to his people. And so God raised up the nation of Assyria to accomplish this. And as greedy, violent Israel watched Assyria march closer, she knew that her possessions would be taken from her, and she feared that she would be treated with the same violence that she herself had used against the poor and the immigrant and the widow and the orphan and the weak in her own nation. You see, since Israel had learned to see the world only through the filters of power and money and violence and revenge, she was terrified at what was coming. And frankly, who wouldn't be? Right, if you see the world simply as a stage for the display of power dynamics, for the celebration of winners and the humiliation of losers, if you see it as a place where the strong always dominate the weak, and these are the lenses that Israel's kings had taught her to view the world through for centuries, if this was your filter, not only would you live like Israel had, but your greatest fear would be becoming weak because that would mean all that you had to look forward to was oppression and brutality and eventually death. God recognizes this. And he doesn't want his people to see their lives this way. And so as God begins the process of breaking down in order to rebuild, he wants them to see what he's doing through the filters of redemption and hope, not through the filters of pain and fear and anger. He doesn't want them to watch, uh, if, you, if I can use this analogy, he doesn't want them to watch the news through fear-colored glasses or see their neighbor through the lens of bitter suspicion. He wants them to look at everything through the redemptive power and plan and presence of Jesus. Uh, this isn't a sermon on chapter 8, but just to help you see where I'm getting this, in chapter 8, verse 12, you can turn back there if you want, God says, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and him be your dread. As an aside, can I just ask that all of us 
put this verse on whatever screen we watch our news on? Please? And as another aside, when God says to fear and dread him, he doesn't mean be terrified of me like you're terrified of the Assyrians. God is not an abusive father going, you think they're scary? Wait till I get a hold of you. That is not what Jesus is doing. There's a play on words here. To fear your enemies and be in dread means to fear for your life, right? It mean, and, and if you're afraid because of your enemies, what that means is that your emotional life and your view of the world are calibrated to the people and to the events that you're scared of. You're looking at them. They're filling your vision. You're seeing your life through them. And so you are petrified of what is going to come upon you and your family. But to fear the Lord and even be very afraid of him means to completely devote yourself to following Jesus into life. Because that's what the fear of the Lord means in the Old Testament. It means to follow God into life. It's the Old Testament's way of saying to live by faith. God is saying here, Calibrate your emotions to me, not your enemies. See the world through my redemptive presence and through my holiness. As you view the world, see Jesus in the frame. See the cross above you and the open tomb behind your enemies. See my holiness and my redemption, which saves the slave from the oppressor, and forgives sins and reconciles sinners. That is the message of hope Jesus is giving his people in chapter 8, which is why he says in 8 verse 20, this is, I think this is very powerful. He says, if they will not speak, and this is the leaders here, that they here are the leaders, the kings, the prophets. If they will not speak according to this word, which is the the word to calibrate our lives to God's redemptive presence over the things we fear. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. Isn't that a beautiful image? God is saying the people who are saying to you, be afraid, be angry, be bitter, be cruel, strike first. Mercy is for suckers who don't see the world for what it is. They're saying that simply because they don't have a light that shines in the darkness. They don't have a gospel. They don't have the filter of Jesus triumphing up over the strong of the world by becoming weak in a manger, born to a poor girl and a homeless husband in Bethlehem. They can't see because they don't have the light of Christ. And so they speak out of a darkness of fear, which the passage, which our passage calls darkness and gloom at the end of chapter 8. Now, having set up the context, this is why the transition of chapter 9 is so powerful. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish, verse 1. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shone. 
Why? Why in a world that is described, according to people's worldview, by violence and power and cruelty and the strong triumphing over the weak, why has light suddenly broken into that darkness? Well, it's because God is going to give his people a child, a son. God is going to send his people Jesus. And Jesus is going to bring peace that will last forever. The boots of war and the garments stained with violence will be destroyed. No more war. No more death. King Jesus is going to bring salvation and redemption into the world. And Jesus is going to do that by taking his place as our king. And that's the meaning of verse 6. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. So whereas before the people lived in an unstable kingdom, held up by unstable rulers, learning anti-Christ behavior from their poor leaders, Right? They learned harshness and cruelty and sin. Now God's people are going to learn Christ-like behavior from Christ the King himself who upholds the kingdom with his own steady righteousness in such a way that it cannot be shaken. Uh, and I don't have time this morning to show this fully. This is like This might be next year's Christmas sermon. But the promise here is that the king and the kingdom will go with his people wherever they go. So as they go out into exile, King Jesus and his kingdom go with them. And that's why the nations in the first few verses there rejoice in their spoils. The spoils being the people of God they have captured and brought back into their native land. You see, because the king of Israel goes with his people and because he's with them, as the nations bring Israel into their presence, Jesus goes with them so that he can save Jew and Gentile together into one new family. Maybe I should have preached that this Sunday. Next year, we'll hear about that. But having said all of that, now we can look at the names that King Jesus receives because they show us the way that Jesus rules over us today. This is what Jesus does now. So let's look at them. At the end of verse 6, we're told that our king is also our wonderful counselor. Now remember, we're talking about a time when everyone feels all turned around, and we have no idea what that's like. They're afraid. They're confused. This does not describe our life. The Bible is such a distant book. It just doesn't speak anything to our real existence. Could someone please make the Bible relevant to what's going on in my life? God's people can't see redemption. They can't see hope in any of their current trials. They don't know how to repent. They don't know how to reconcile their relationships. They don't know how to bring peace that is anything more than a simple ceasefire. What they need is a counselor. And a counselor is someone who helps you figure out what to do and what to say and how to act so that you can enter into God's blessings of life. A counselor is someone who gives you wisdom. And wisdom is how you walk with God. And for God, kings are supposed to be 
counselors. They're supposed to be givers of wisdom to God's people. And uh, when I say that, you all probably think right away of King Solomon, right? Who used his wisdom to bring justice and stability and reconciliation and peace to the people of God during his reign. Not perfectly, yes. But really and truly, it was a good time to be in Israel. But given the fact that God mentions David here, I think an example from David's own life might help us understand this even just a little bit more. Uh, You may remember that before there was King David, there was King Saul. You may also remember that Saul hated David because Saul was jealous of David and he feared David, even though David had never harmed him or done anything to merit or earn or deserve this kind of treatment. You see, Saul viewed David through the filter of his own insecurity, his own fear, and his own jealousy. He did not view him through the gospel. And so Saul spent years trying to murder David, forcing him to be a homeless refugee for years and years. And after Saul died and David took the throne, everyone expected David to act like all the other kings of his day, which was to find all the descendants of Saul and kill them so that he could consolidate his power and also to take revenge on the man who had unjustly ruined his life for years. David could have done that. He could have viewed the world through his own experience of mismatched power dynamics and anger and fear. But instead, David decides to follow God's own redemptive leadership and God's own wisdom. And he views Saul's descendants through the filter of God's own love. And so he finds one of Saul's descendants by the name of Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth is a young man who is lame from childhood because uh, as a baby, his nurse picked him up and they were fleeing for their lives and she tripped and fell and his legs were mangled. And this weak young man was hiding for his life because he feared David. David finds Mephibosheth and he says to him, I am not only going to spare your life. I'm going to actually be kind to you. I'm going to care for you. I'm going to make you a part of my family, not an heir to the throne, but I'm going to take you in and make you like one of my own sons. And not only that, I'm going to show you extra grace. In royalty, when do you eat? When the king gets there and sits down, right? That's when you eat, not before. David says, we're going to get here at the table. Mephibosheth, this lame man who has to hobble his way in, We will eat when he gets to the table. He gets the position of honor. I am going to show him the redemptive grace of Jesus. David treats the people who uh, were associated with those who hurt him with mercy and with kindness. And this behavior, which reflected God's own behavior towards him and to us, actually counseled Israel on how to treat their enemies, and it taught God's people how to do the same thing. And if you go back and you read in uh, 1 Samuel and you see the events that follow, you will see God's people 
being merciful to their enemies like King David showed them how to do. But all of that said, and as great as that is, here's what David's counsel and example could not do. It couldn't reconcile him to Saul. And it couldn't overcome the bitterness of some of Saul's family, which they held against him, even after he showed kindness to them. Mephibosheth, he was grateful, but a number of Saul's family and servants, they weren't. You see, David's counsel was good, but it wasn't wonderful. Now, the word wonderful there doesn't mean super good. It means something only God can do. It usually is used in the Bible to describe our response to God's miracles when he creates something out of nothing, when he brings life from the dead, when he makes a way in the wilderness where there is no way. That's when God's people look and they say, that is wonderful, that is miraculous, that is something only Jesus could do. By calling him wonderful counselor, We're being told that Jesus is a king like David, but better than David. Jesus is a miraculous counselor. He's someone whose words and example bring life to the dead. Healing to the broken. Peace to the warring. King Jesus brings the wisdom of heaven's own resurrection life to us who experience fear and death today, and who makes our enemies our friends. To follow Christ and see the world through him is to witness and experience the resurrecting words of Jesus. Why? Because he's our mighty God and our everlasting Father. When the Bible says that God is mighty, it doesn't simply mean that he's stronger than everybody else. I mean, Obviously, that's true, right? But in the context of the Bible, God is usually called mighty when his people need saving. When we face enemies that we are simply not strong enough to beat, enemies like Satan, death, sin, division, sometimes even our own hearts, sometimes our broken view of our lives and our neighbors that we just cannot seem to replace with the light of Christ's grace, God shows his might. God stands and defends us. God protects us. He saves us. He refilters our vision. He resurrects us and recreates us. That's the mighty God. Jesus is also our miraculous counselor because uh, he is our king who defends us with God's own saving might. But more than that, what is Jesus saving us from? Excuse me. He's saving us from being a broken family. What is the overarching context in Isaiah? God's people are at war with themselves. Two nations, two kingdoms, two two kings. And they're at war with the world. Jew-Gentile. We are a family at war. Jesus saves us 
from this by becoming our everlasting Father. I know that this might strike an odd chord in today's world, but in the Bible, the primary role of a father is to protect his family's relationships. Usually you'll hear the primary role of a father is to protect his family, and the idea is like, you know, you go out there and you get some fisticuffs going on. Sure, but like the main thing that fathers are doing in the Bible is protecting the relationships within their own family. And that's not the father's only job, but it's at the heart of that job. God calls himself our father, not only because he creates our family, but because he protects the relationships within his family. He reconciles us to himself and to each other. He brings about repentance and forgiveness so that we can love and forgive and receive each other. God is our father because he restores our life together. Go home and do a word search on father in the Old Testament. Whenever you see God called our father in the Old Testament, it is because some aspect of our relationship as his family is in danger. And God is going to defend it. God is the father who is going to fix what is broken in us and among us, and he is going to make us whole because he is our everlasting father. Which raises an interesting question. Why is he our everlasting father? And the answer is, even the best fathers who seem to be so effective at fostering repentance and forgiveness and peace die. God doesn't die. Jesus is our everlasting father because he lives forever to reconcile us to himself and to each other forever, to defend our life together forever. And that's also why he's called the Prince of Peace at the very end. Now, the Hebrew word for peace, shalom, it does not mean cease fire. It doesn't mean that you've simply stopped punching each other, but you hate each other in your hearts. It means wholeness. The idea is it's a peace that comes because everything has fit together just right. Have you ever done a puzzle and you get down and you have all the pieces and you put that last piece in and you go, ah, it just makes you feel at peace. Exactly. That is peace. That's shalom. It means peace in the sense of being whole, that we are united and restored and enjoying the blessings of heaven together. And by calling Jesus the Prince of Peace, God is saying that King Jesus' rule is always aimed at wholeness and will always, at the end of the day, accomplish wholeness. wholeness. Jesus is the king who brings justice to the oppressed, freedom to the slave. He brings repentance to the oppressor, and he's the wonderful counselor who brings reconciliation and forgiveness to them both. Jesus is the one who brings joy where there was sorrow and blessing in every ever-increasing measure, just like we talked about last, excuse me, Sunday. 
Jesus teaches us how to view each other through the joyful unity that he gives us through his own mighty power. Jesus shows us that he is the king who will use his might to protect our life together and give us wholeness and even work miraculously to increase our number through his saving work. And therefore, we can look at the world with the hope of the gospel and live in wisdom in our King's kindness and goodness and mercy. And why does God do this? This is our final point, almost done. Because of his zeal. That's the end of verse 7. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now, one way to think of zeal is as a consuming passion. So hatred is a kind of zeal, right? You're passionate, zealous about hurting other people and causing them pain. Simon was a zealot. And they said, I'm zealous for the holiness of God. But what it meant was he was sworn himself to kill Romans. I zealously hate you in my heart for Jesus. That's what Simon swore to. This is a different kind of zealousness. Not a zealousy, not a zealotry of hatred, but a passionateness for salvation. God is zealous for his people. He's passionate for restoration and reconciliation. It consumes him the desire to give us the light of the gospel in a dark world. This is why the light of heaven came down to earth, to save us, to counsel us, to defend our life together, to give us peace, and then take his throne in heaven so that he can lead us in his ways all the days of our life forever and ever. My friends, this Christmas season, let's take the opportunity to refresh our vision. Let's intentionally not look at our life through the fears and dreads that this world tells us to do or to use. Let's look at our life through Jesus. Let's trust him. When we're scared, let's in our minds put the picture of the cross where Jesus conquered the world, the flesh, and the devil. When we're interacting with people who frighten us and scare us and who we think are just the worst, let's put the empty tomb behind them in our vision so that we can remember that Jesus brings life to dead sinners. When we are afraid that God does not have a place in his kingdom for us, let's remember that he put his name on us with the waters of baptism and said, Mine! Forever. Let's look at each other and our lives through Jesus because he is our king who is leading us into his own eternally joyful life. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for being strong enough to save us. Thank you for sending Jesus to us uh, to be our miraculous counselor, our everlasting father and prince of peace. Uh, please help us to see the world through the glasses of his gospel. Uh, and please help us to follow you so that others can see Christ and his presence in us. And finally, Father, please help the leaders in our church to be faithful followers of our King 
because we want to be a congregation where the goodness of Christ can be experienced in the fullest way possible. And that's why we ask all of us in his name. Amen.